Good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning to First King to Second Kings, chapter twenty. That was right the plan. Second Kings chapter 20. I don't know what I did with my phone. Zip. Yes. Thank you. The title for our lesson this morning, it's a bit wordy. It's the bewildering priorities of King Hezekiah. The bewildering priorities of King Hezekiah. The bewildering what? Priorities. Our first point this morning is going to be the preservation of himself. The preservation of himself. Let's start in verse 1. It says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Nothing like facing your death with some courage, right? And it came to pass, afore Isaiah was gone out, into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him I need to turn that on silent uh, the word of the Lord came to him saying verse 5 turn again and tell Hezekiah the captain of my people thus saith the Lord the God of David thy father I have heard thy prayer and have seen thy tears Behold, I will heal thee on the third day. Thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And what shall I go up unto the house of the Lord? Oh, I'm sorry. And that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day. And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees, or go back ten degrees? 
And Hezekiah said, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. So a lot happening here. We're going to break this down bit by bit. It says, firstly, uh, at the top of the chapter that Hezekiah wept sore. Throughout Scripture, we've seen many brave men using their final moments to set their affairs in order and plead with the people of Israel to be faithful to the Lord. Right? Hezekiah, however, uses his final moments to plead for his own life. He was instructed by God to set his house in order, but he does not do so. Right? He uses his final moments to try to save his own skin. There's a, and we're going to expound upon this more toward the end of the lesson, so I don't know how much I need to go into detail here, but... There is a sense of bravery, right? That one needs in moments like these. And in his final moments, we see what kind of a man he really was. We see that about a lot of people, whether it be Abraham or whether it be Moses or whether it be David, uh, we see what kind of men they were in their final moments. Abraham was a man that loved his family and cared about them and wanted them generation after generation to continue in the ways of the Lord. We see Moses on top of that mountain looking out on the promised land with such joy over the life that he's led and yet such regret over the mistakes that he made that he couldn't get into that promised land. Before he passes away, he knows he's about to. We see Joshua, we see David, we see men throughout Scripture that use their final moments with, and they face it with bravery and faith because when you know you have a home in heaven, it sort of takes the sting out of death. Amen. But we see Hezekiah has no peace over his death. He clearly believes in the Lord, he clearly trusts in the Lord, and is saved and has a relationship with God because God is talking to him here. If it wasn't, the Lord wouldn't be dealing with him like this. But God answers him, despite his uh, disobedience, he says, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. So despite the disobedience of Hezekiah, God feels sorry for him. And he shows the king of Israel compassion. And that's the kind of God we serve. He could have looked at Hezekiah and he could have seen this, disobedience, weakness, you know, um, afraid, not facing his death with the bravery of other great men of the past. But instead he looks on him with compassion, right? Bible says in Psalm 107 verse 1, O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. Anybody know the rest of that verse? I'm pretty sure it was on something hanging up in the house for a while. 
It says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. I don't see it right now. But uh, it says, For His mercy endureth forever. I've seen that hanging up somewhere. But you think so? It might be. But His mercy endureth forever. It's Psalm 107, verse 1. When we pray, and Jesus, as He's teaching His disciples, can you imagine anybody having a stronger prayer life than Jesus? Nobody can get a hold of the Heavenly Father better than God the Son, right? And His disciples see that, and they're like, wow, and they come up to Him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray after this manner. And he gives them the model prayer. But before that, he says, use not vain repetition, which means he wants us to pray like that, but maybe not those exact words. And so what he says, he starts off saying, our Father which art in heaven, and most of us probably know this, hallowed be thy name. Right? He starts off giving thanks to the Lord, talking about how holy and hallowed he is. We should begin our prayers by giving thanks to the Lord. Amen. And not just for the stuff He gives us, but for who He is as a person. Right? When you want somebody to be thankful for you, would you rather them be thankful for the stuff you do for them? Or would you rather somebody say, you know, I'm just really glad to have a person like you in my life. That would make you feel so good, wouldn't it? That's what God wants. He doesn't want us to just come to Him and say, thank you for all of these things. He does want us to do that. But... The Lord also would like for us to come to Him and contemplate the different ways that He's good to us. The different ways that He's just so amazing. And here this verse in Psalm gives us a few of those. We should give thanks to the Lord for He is good. So we should give thanks to the Lord because the Lord is good. We should give thanks to the Lord, it also says, because His mercy endureth forever. God's mercy has no end. Have you ever had to ask a whole lot of somebody and you thought, I am surely about to exhaust their patience with me? Right? Like, uh, you got to go to your boss and you've got like four or five things you got to tell them and you're just wondering at which point in that list they're going to get frustrated. And you get to thing four and they're still not frustrated yet and you're like wow they're they're being really patient about this this is great but i've got one more thing on this list and i'm scared to say it we come to god thing after thing after thing after thing and he never exhausts his patience with us he never gets tired of doing us favors he never gets tired of taking our list of needs our prayers for each other our prayers for ourselves he never gets tired of hearing from us and you might say, well, of course, he's God. But imagine standing before a king. Power corrupts, they say. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So somebody who's powerful wants to be able to use that power for themselves. Right? Someone who's powerful doesn't want to have to use that power just for everybody else. Right? I want to walk into a crowd. If I'm a celebrity, I want to be noticed. I want people to ask for my autograph. I want people to tell me how much they love me. I want people to want a picture with me so bad. 
right? If I'm a politician, I want to be able to walk into different places and people, you know, try to buddy-buddy with me and give me things and try to be my friend so that when I do my job as a politician, I can make their lives easier. People with power want that power to benefit them. That's what they mean by power corrupts. But God holds the ultimate power of the universe. God spoke light into existence. Think about that for a second. The very concept of light is something after thousands of years of scientific study, we haven't even really began to scratch the surface of what we understand as light. We understand a few things about it. We understand how fast it travels. You know, we understand its effect on the world and how it gives us color, right? Because a thing will absorb all the different colors except for one. And the color it reflects and bounces off of it that it doesn't absorb, that's the color our eyes see. That's why when I look at these chairs, I see that they're maroon. Right? Because that's the color that bounces off into my eye. That's about it. That's about as much as we know. Maybe a few other things that scientists know that I don't, but there's not a whole lot more than that. We don't know what light is made up of. Right? We don't really know if it's a matter or what state of matter. We don't really know much about light at all. So imagine this thing that we have so little knowledge of, God just spoke into existence. That's the amazing power of the God that we serve. And yet his power does not corrupt him at all. He's not corrupted by his power. He has no need to be uh, pandered to. We praise God. We lift him up and our lives are meant to be about him. But that's not because he's prideful. If we didn't praise God, Jesus said, if, if humans didn't praise me, the rocks would cry my name out because God must be praised. That's one of the universal laws. God must be praised. That's the way he built this universe. Something has to cry out the glory and goodness of God. If we didn't do it, nature itself would do it. But he's not corrupted. He's perfect. That's why his mercy endureth forever. Because if you stood before a really powerful king and you kept asking them to do things for you over and over and over and over and over again, probably very quickly into that list, they would get tired of listening to you. Have you hauled off somewhere? God, and as powerful as he is, his mercy endureth forever. That is an amazing thing. Don't let that just glance right over the top of your head. His mercy endures forever. So he's, he hears this man. He hears his prayers. He sees his tears. Did you know God sees your tears? If you don't have that phrase marked in your Bible, I would encourage you to mark that phrase, I have seen thy tears. God sees your tears, and God has compassion on you. And in response to this, he tells Isaiah that he's going to heal him. And God's method for healing this man is for them to take a lump of figs and put over... Apparently, it's some sort of an abscess. It's some sort of a maybe like a tumor or something that he's got that's making him sick unto death. And they're taking these figs and they're putting it over whatever it is that's killing him. 
and that is how he gets healed. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I've never heard of the medicinal properties of figs. You know, they're pretty tasty, especially if you put them in a fig newton. But uh, I've never heard You're shaking your head over there. <laughs> Why isn't that working? Oh, it's muted. can you unmute my laptop? Anyway, I've never heard of the medicinal properties of figs before. So when Isaiah is to take a lump of these figs and put it on him, it makes me wonder why figs, you know? Like, why that specifically? Thank you. And there is a reason. Oh, by the way, this is for you. There you go. If you'll backtrack to 2 Kings 18 with me real quick this morning. Want to look at something. Does anybody remember what was happening in chapter 18? Our Cahoots champions? <clears throat> no, that was definitely not me. Something very <laughs> biblical. Could be. Something very biblical? Well, that narrows it down. Something, something Jeroboam. Jesus. No. Jehu. No. Jehu. No. The Southern Kingdom versus the Northern Guys, it's just two chapters ago. I'm looking at it so It's still Hezekiah. Yeah. Somebody got beheaded. No. <laughs> uh, he rebelled against the Syria to defeat the Philistines? Yes. I'm glad you can read your mother's Bible. Yes. <laughs> he's He stood up against Assyria. You remember, this is where the king of Assyria came down, right? And he's telling him, I don't know why you think your God can help you. Nobody's God can help them. I beat everybody. Uh, you need to get down on your hands and knees. Forget about your God. Your God worships me now. Oh, I do. Yeah. Uh, your God bows down to me. Your God pays me tithes, is what he's saying here. And uh, God is like, Hezekiah, don't worry about him. He, he's not long for this world anymore. You can't speak about God like that. But in verse 31, specifically of chapter 18, let's read. Uh, he's talking to the soldiers of the army of Israel. And that's important for you to understand. He's talking to Hezekiah's soldiers. He says, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink every one of the waters of his cistern. So, Basically, what he's saying is if you come out and you join my side of the war, you desert your king and you come and become a Benedict Arnold and you join my side, I will give you your own vineyard. I will give you your own fig tree orchard. And I will give you your own cisterns of water, which is basically running water, which was a really big deal back then. These were the promises he made to every man that would abandon Hezekiah and join the Assyrian army. That's a good deal. You know how many of his men joined the Assyrian army? Nobody. Not one soldier joined the Assyrian army in defiance of their king. 
When the king of Assyria came to Judah, he offered everybody willing to desert the king the most amazing things, including fig trees. But they remained loyal to him. So these figs that are on Hezekiah, these figs, would be a reminder to the king of a time when his men showed him great loyalty as he's looking upon a moment that he might have died. And it's much like the kind of loyalty that Hezekiah showed the Lord in his lifetime. And God says, the way that they chose not to abandon me and stayed faithful to me, He said, just like you did, Hezekiah, I told you to trust me to take care of the king of Assyria. Don't stand up against him. Don't join him. Just trust me. And that's exactly what you did. You trusted me to deal with him, and I did. And you were loyal to me the way your men were loyal to you. And these figs are a reminder of that. He says, this is why I'm answering your prayer, because you were loyal to me. Right? So that's what the lump of figs represents. And then something amazing happens. And it's, it's a bit like what happened in the day of Joshua. I can't quite explain the science behind it, but it did happen, and I believe that. He brought the shadow 10 degrees backward. Now, we're talking about here, in case you're a little lost, a sundial. And the sundial is moving forward like a clock does. That's how sundials work. The sundial of Ahaz was a very old-fashioned type before the type that the Greeks and so forth had. This was a brass um, thing held in a bowl of water. And it would move the shadow as it was set in the courtyard just accordingly to tell what time it was. Uh, but God moved the shadow of the sundial backwards 10 degrees. Does that mean he made time for that? Well, there are varying theories about that. Because some people think that, yes, he, he reversed time by whatever 10 degrees was. Some people think that he didn't reverse time. Uh, this is more what I believe. It's not so much that, he, that time went backwards, but just that the shadow right. went backwards. So it's not like time moved backwards, uh, just what we use to measure time went backwards, right? And that is the difference because it's the same amount of time. It's a bit like daylight savings time. It's the same amount of time at one end or the other. We're just moving the markers is all we're doing. But time flows onward. We're just picking up our goalposts and moving them to different places along it, uh, if that makes sense. That's what I believed happened. But also, uh, this was, I believe, symbolic of God turning back the hands of time when Hezekiah thought that he was out of time. Right, And there's no way for me to know this for sure, but if I had to guess, I would imagine that 10 degrees falls somewhere in the realm of 15 minutes. Because that was how many years he gave Hezekiah. And I think we're given that number for a reason. And I think it's to know that that 15 minutes correlates with the miracle. That 15 minutes is what he was given. And then 15 years is what he was given as well. Sort of tying in those things. Uh, but what God just did with this sundial, whether it was pulling back actual time or just the, the markers of it by moving the shadow backwards, 
Regardless, it should have been scientifically impossible. The only way for you to move the shadow of something backwards 10 degrees like that is to move the sun backwards enough where it moves like that. And if that is what actually happened, what science teaches us should have happened is the same thing what should have happened in Joshua. When Joshua was running out of daylight for his battle, he asked God to hold the sun still in the sky. Which Joshua didn't know this, but the sun's not what was moving. The earth was moving around it. He just, you know, from his perspective, they didn't know that yet. So something was held still long enough for Joshua to finish the battle. And if that was the case, gravity should have stopped working. They should have all floated out into space. Right? The same thing kind of true here. If it's going backwards, you know, the earth is reversing the other direction to go backwards 10 degrees on the sundial. I can't even begin to tell you the uh, physics of what should have happened to the earth. You know, that number one should be impossible, but number two, it, it should have had some sort of really serious ramifications to the physics of the gravity and other things of the earth. And it didn't. Why is that? Because with God, all things are possible. I had a Bible teacher in Bible college who used to say this to us. When you come across a really hard to believe portion of scripture, what he'd say was, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, you can believe all the rest. If you can believe in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, is anything else really too hard for God? He was able to just talk and it existed. Let there be light. Let there be the earth. Let there be the oceans. Let there be animals. Let there be humans. And it just showed up as he spoke. You imagine if he actually started using his hands that anything would be too hard for God? So we believe this by faith. We may not always understand it, but we believe it. As a matter of fact, a lot of people think the Bible is really archaic and it holds science back. But as a matter of fact, I can tell you for certain that the Bible has always had accurate science truth in it. Whether people believe that or not, you see what happens is people will take a verse and they'll twist it and manipulate it to mean what they want it to. And so people believe in, oh, bloodletting is fine. That's how we heal. You got to get that bad blood out. Well, the Bible teaches us that life is in the blood. That's what the Bible teaches us. And for years, we believed that to be referring to Jesus and him dying on the cross. And that is what it means. But many times throughout the Bible, there's more than one meaning to a verse. Uh, for example, Jesus will quote an Old Testament verse. He's on the cross. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which in English means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he's saying that in Hebrew, which is weird because the common tongue was Koine Greek. So then why was he speaking Hebrew on the cross? Because he was quoting a psalm that David wrote. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from my trouble, my roaring? He's quoting David there. David was talking about what he was going through. David went through one problem after another his whole life. He was talking about his own personal problems, but Jesus said that there was a second layer under that that referred to Christ. And it's him on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he took on the sins of the earth. And he wanted us to know that he had been forsaken by his heavenly Father because of our sins. So there's a lot of layers to verses. They don't always mean just one thing. So when the Bible teaches us that the life is in the blood, it doesn't just mean the blood of Christ. It also teaches us that if you remove the blood from a creature, it's going to die. Right? For years and years, 
the Marines were looking for an, a rule. If somebody's a sailor, somebody's lost at sea, we need a basic rule they can follow so that they know what they can eat. Right? If I eat this fish, is it safe for me to eat? If I eat this fish, is it going to poison me? And they came up with a rule that says basically if it's got fins and it's got scales, it's okay. And uh, you know what the Bible teaches what kind of fish are clean and unclean to eat? A clean fish, one that's okay for us to eat, is one that's got fins and scales. You see, the science will keep catch up with the Bible if you give it enough time. They, they find out that the meats that the Bible refers to as clean animals are leaner meats and they're healthier for you than the animals that are considered unclean. Right? So the Bible knows what it's talking about. There's a lot of knowledge in the Word of God. We just trust that the Lord knows what He's talking about. All things are possible with God. Which leads us secondly and finally for our lesson this morning to number two, the neglect of future generations. In verse 12 of 2 Kings 20, it says, At that time, Barodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, well, that's a mouthful right there, isn't it? Baradach Baladon, the son of Baladon. So you know what happened there was Baladon was in the, the waiting room waiting for the baby to be born. The baby's born and he says, hey, why don't we name him Baladon? Baladon's a good name. You want to do business with a guy named Baladon? You call Baladon up on the phone. How you doing, Baladon? Oh, that's old Baladon. You want to go catch lunch, Baladon? Let's go play some golf, Baladon. What's wrong with him, Baladon? His wife looks at him and he, she says, nothing, Baladon. <laughs> and so he says, okay, okay. We'll compromise. But you know that's what happened. That's why it was called Bayradoc Baladon. Bayradoc Baladon, the son of Baladon, the, son of, uh, the king of Babylon. That just sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? <laughs> Sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointments and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, Well, they're come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in thy house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in mine house have they seen. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shalt they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of, king ba of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, and all his might, and how he made a pool and a conduit, and brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his stead. The neglect of future generations. But it says that the king of Babylon sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah. And this is a warning to us. Okay, learn this lesson from Hezekiah. Always be cautious of people's flattering words. Right, because it's been my experience and scripturally true that those people that are trying to butter you up are doing so for a reason. Right, if somebody's being a little too nice, a little too honest, you might be a little cautious of that. The Bible says in Proverbs 29 5, a man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. You've seen it maybe in those movies, those traps where it's like tied up into the tree, but the net's laid on the ground and it sets off as soon as somebody puts pressure on the net and the net like binds up around them and shoots them up into the tree. That's an actual thing. That's what it's talking about here in Proverbs 29.5. That a man that flattereth his neighbor has a net underneath them ready to, to spring a trap on them. That's what they're doing. If they're flattering you with their lips, be careful. Look for the net that they've set to trap you. In the next hour, I'm going to talk about some of the men that have tried to set traps for me throughout my ministry leading up to us starting Faith Baptist Church. Because we ought, we ought to be cautious. You have to be careful about these things because the devil isn't always going to use the people you think he should. Right, the devil's supposed to use the people that aren't Christians, that don't go to church all the time, that, uh, that you don't know very well, and send those people to come and discourage you. He's not supposed to use church members. Right? He's not supposed to use Christians, but he does. He's not supposed to use family members, but often he does. But we need to be cautious of the net the devil lays in store for us. And then it says that Hezekiah hearkened unto them. He wasn't cautious of the net that was being laid out in front of him. Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things. You know, Hezekiah might have been able to save Judah a lot of pain in the future by having just a little bit of humility rather than being ready to show off for Babylon. Everybody wants Babylon to think they're the cool kid. Right, because Babylon is the might in the world at that point in time in history. So everybody wants Babylon to think they're the cool kid. They want to say, hey, I want to hang out with that nation because they're cool like me. That's what Hezekiah was thinking. If he was 
little bit wiser, he'd have realized what they were thinking was, hey, that's a lot of cool stuff. I need to murder these people and take their stuff. That's how Babylon became so powerful in the first place. But if Hezekiah would have just had a bit of humility, they would have never known about all of that really cool stuff that they wanted and would have never had a desire to come and take it and its citizens as captives in the future. And that's a tragic lesson we'll study another day, but a lot of pain and misery could have been saved here if Hezekiah would have just been a little bit humble. It's important for us. We must learn the value of humility if we're ever going to learn to escape this snare of Satan. Because it's a proud person that thinks, yes, of course they want to flatter me and spend time with me. I'm just the best. It's that kind of a person who doesn't even think twice when somebody starts to flatter them. But if we have some humility about us, we'll say, what are they doing? What are they trying to prove? I mean, they're, they're going a little over the top here. You know, I appreciate a compliment, but this is weird. Something a little funny is going on. Yet a little humility will give us a kind of clarity in these situations. We can avoid trouble. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty or proud. And before honor is humility. Proverbs 18.12 Before honor is humility. You know what that means? That a man is more easily honored when he doesn't honor himself. Right? Either verbally or mentally. You keep yourself humble. You let other people do the bragging on you. And then we see the absolutely selfish response of King Hezekiah to this tragic news. And you know, the thing about his response is, it's so horrible, but he makes it sound so good. He makes it sound so spiritual and wise, but it's just selfish. He says, is it not good if peace and truth be in my day? He said before that, Good is the word of the Lord which thou, Isaiah, has spoken. That sounds right, doesn't it? You read that, that sounds right. It almost confuses you. You think, well, that he just said a really terrible thing. But he said the word of the Lord is good. That sounds right too. Which, which one is it? Because he's learned to say something really terrible by saying something really wonderful. Right? Uh, you'll find politicians do that today. They're not just going to come right out and say, hey, look, I I'm wanting to pass this law because it really it really helped me out. If I get my name in a history book somewhere, that'd be great. Uh, also, these uh, you know companies that are paying the checks behind everybody's back that you don't really see, they want me to pass these laws. It would really help me out, thanks. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, the children. Ah, the children. You know, they're, they're going to say, there's people dying. They don't care about those people dying. They don't care about the children. But they've learned to do something really terrible by saying something really wonderful. I heard somebody say something one time, kind of like it, but a little different. I thought it was very wise. He said, 
people have learned in our day and age, if you want to do something evil, you hide it in something boring. Right? Because that's what they try to do. They, that's why when you have a contract to sign, it's that long. Right? Because they want to do something evil to you down the road, they're going to hide it in this boring contract you're not going to read. What do they do when you go to get a car? You got a stack of papers that thick you got to sign. Right? Are you reading every word on those pages? No, you're not. If you say you are, you're a liar. I don't believe you. Nobody's ever read all of those pages. I got better things to do. I don't read all those pages. I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying there's a reason they're worded the way they are. There's a reason legal documents are phrased the way that they are. There's a reason that when you go to court, the law itself has had to define specific terms in specific ways in specific situations because they're trying to hide something evil and something boring. You know, and it's kind of the same way here. Hezekiah is trying to hide his selfishness and his incredibly evil attitude by saying, oh, good is the word of the Lord. And that sounds right, but it's not. Because this wasn't good. I mean, it was right because God said it. This is what's going to happen. And there's a good reason for it because it's God that's doing it. But it is a tragedy. And he's refusing to acknowledge that because he's saying, isn't it good if peace and truth are in my day? Does that mean I did something right? Well, yeah, but don't you feel bad for your kids? Your grandkids? Your great-grandkids? Hezekiah was gifted 15 extra years. But all the things he did with it were for himself. He spent 15 extra years living that the Bible did not record. He was given extra life and this is the final stories of King Hezekiah. We don't hear anything about the next 15 years. Why is that? Because he didn't do anything with it. History does not record that 15 years because he wasted it. The king couldn't bring himself to even feel anything for the descendants that he had just doomed but had no problem staring at a wall in his room crying for himself. Really easy to feel bad for himself, but he can't feel bring himself to feel sorry for his grandkids. That tells you what kind of a man he was. Not much of a man at all. A real man is willing to die for his family. I'll die so that they can live, so that they can have a better life. That's what a man does. It's a wimpy coward of a man who puts himself before his family. In Joshua's final words, he says, As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Famous phrase. David gave us the famous expression, I go the way of all the earth. Beautiful poetry from the sweet psalmist of Israel. Yet the final words of King Hezekiah were, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my day? This is the last phrase we hear from Hezekiah. These were his final words as far as we know them. And they were selfish and cruel. Let this be a warning to us.
If all we do is live for our own happiness, we leave nothing behind for the next generation to succeed with. And all that we've worked so hard to build will come to ruin. Do not end like Hezekiah. Great start, great middle, terrible finish. Let's, as Paul said, fight a good fight. Let's finish our course. Let's keep the faith. Let's finish strong. That is our Sunday School lesson for this morning. We will be back at 11 o'clock for the morning service in about 15 minutes.